Welcome to the First Impressions Podcast, the official podcast of the Forum of Incident Response and Security Teams. Every month, Chris John Riley and myself, Martin McKay, share informal conversations with security professionals from around the globe. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone, and any sarcasm you hear is purely intentional. For more information on FIRST or this podcast, please check out FIRST.org. Welcome to the First Impressions Podcast. I'm Martin McKay. My co-host, Chris John Riley, and I are joined by Nama Bendov, who is a Senior Strategy Merger and Acquisition Manager at Microsoft. Did I get that whole string right, Nama? You did. You did. Sounds very, very loaded, but you did. <laughs> really, what we want to start with is just what is a strategy merger and acquisition manager do? Yeah, um, that's an awesome question. So um, my group specifically focuses on cybersecurity. And within it, we're basically embedded within different super, super talented product groups and engineering groups uh, within Microsoft. And we basically align and work with them around a lot of strategic initiatives, uh, things that they want to see in their product roadmap in the next six months, one year, or even five years from now. And ultimately, a lot of these uh, projects and sessions and endeavors um, could end up in um, incubations of new products or potentially partnerships. And of course, in the long run, a lot of them also um, ends up with acquisitions or mergers within Microsoft. So we're embedded and working heads down with engineers around a lot of these strategic product initiatives. So it sounds like you're spending a lot of time trying to figure out what that next thing is, right? You're trying to plan five years out for, for what needs to get done. What does that entail? Do you, you sit down with lots of experts in various areas trying to figure out what that roadmap looks like for the future and then, I don't want to say guess, but strategically point your finger and say, this is the direction we need to be going. This is the, the thing we need to invest in in the future. Yeah, so um, I, I'd say it's a marriage between two muscles, um, if we were to call it so. Um, one muscle is sort of the core engineering um, um, thought work that takes place within the really talented product groups who are out there also talking to customers, developing new things, constantly thinking of new technologies that we can not only provide, but also leverage for um, the Microsoft customers, but also ultimately, and, and where me and my group come to the fore, uh, is um, educating or bringing in the insight from what's happening outside of, of the market, right? So at a very early stage, nascent technologies or trends, um, business phenomena, mergers, acquisitions, you know, um, so, sort of even open source materials, ideas, and, and a lot of things that are taking place and thought work that is taking place outside of Microsoft and sort of marrying these two things together ultimately um, bring in a lot of really super interesting endeavors um, that eventually come up to really high quality products that are rolled onto customers. I have to hazard a guess here that this also requires some ability to live with failure because so much of the startup community ends up on the cutting room floor eventually. I mean, is, is that correct? Or have you perfected it in ways that I don't, that other people haven't? Yeah, so I think, you know, when it comes to tech as a whole, not just within the cybersecurity realm, failure is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just the name of the game. It's sort of an inherently 
um, obvious or typical part of the process, right? I think um, it, even when it comes to sort of early stage startup, um, um, I think the culture around this and specifically within tech really sort of takes into account that, you know, rising to a certain occasion around a certain idea or startup or venture and then sort of understanding um, that it won't progress is, is sort of part of the nature of this industry. And this is, of course, an inherent part of what I saw and also my previous job where I worked as an investor in YL Ventures, which focuses on early stage cybersecurity technologies. It's also something that we're very much informed in within my group right now in Microsoft because we're uh, in constant touch with these startups, a lot of which, you know, have are, are pivoting because um, they see that the certain domain that they doubled down on was not necessarily, um, you know, reaching customers in the optimal way possible. Um, and I think us as Microsoft, we have to be partners in this entire progress, you know, doubling down and working together with startups that we believe have um, very unique value um, for the security community um, as a whole internationally, but also aligning with startups which we think could tailor or could go a different way and provide them with really honest feedback about, you know, what we're hearing from our customers about them about the domain. Um, and this is sort of our way to support early stage technology also inorganically outside of what's already happening uh, within the engineering groups. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I was looking at the news recently and it was the company Fast that uh, just announced they're gonna be closing their doors at like 100 and, 125 million, uh, maybe missing a zero off that in, in funding. And they, they announced they just ran out of money and it's that's a lot of money to burn through. So. Do you see this a lot where there's a fad where people are investing their money because this is the new hotness, this is the new Web 3.0, everyone needs an NFT of a, of a drunk-looking uh, gorilla, um, and that's that's the future. It's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So every, everyone's investing in regex, um, and that's that's the new the new future, right? So and and things like the RSA conference, not to pick on them, right? But and you know, things that you know, this is in the top right corner of the Gartner, Gartner Square. Everyone has to invest in this. How do you separate that out from? I'm going to use the term true innovation, but maybe that's a little bit leading. But you know, things are not just following the pack, but like let's go in a totally different direction. Let's see whether or not we can do something magnificent here? Yeah, that's such a good question. I, th I think it's the mother of all questions, which, you know, around the world, investors, whether it's angels, VCs, startups themselves, um, want to basically cut through the noise and understand um, what customers actually want and what would eventually emerge as a true value to the world in terms of security or any other domains. Um, and there are, I think, multiple stages to validating that, right? So I think a lot of um, founders right now and entrepreneurs um, really know that it's really poignant for them to even before um, raising their first round of money to form some sort of ideation process, right? To sit down, heads down with a co-founder or multiple co-founders with the industry and just ask the right questions, right? To be in, first of all, in listening mode and to truly sort of connect with what um, security practitioners are actually saying and are actually responding to. But I think ultimately a lot of that um, is sort of the mind shift you have to do around not only listing and doing a lot of thought work around that, but also um, creating a vision out of it. So having an actual strategy um, and, and tailoring that from what you're actually seeing from the, um, or listening from the industry, that is 
ultimately were the secret sauces to successful entrepreneurs, uh, those that can identify interesting market trends um, to, to align with their product vision is super, super interesting. Because I think a lot of, um, um, you have to be at an intersection where a lot of things fall together. It's great that there is, for example, this emerging technology um, that could be um, uh, that could be leveraged for a variety of use cases. But if none of those use cases ultimately um, align with what people need right now or in two years from now, that is something which you know not a lot of value can be gained out of. Um, you also have to um, understand and and I think also have a lot of faith and conviction around what you're doing. I think as an investor, a lot of what you're doing is, you know, asking a lot of questions and, and, and you're very much in a doubting sort of position. And I think most of the world, most of us are not entrepreneurs, right? And we, our first basic intuition is to ask the questions and be doubtful. But I think successful entrepreneurs within security and beyond um, have that sort of conviction and foresight um, and strategic sort of product-centric vision um, around what they see in front of them. So I think all of this is to say, being in a position where we're listening to what's happening right now and reading to understand what are the market trends, what are the projections, what are customers actually saying right now, and coupling that with having a genuine a deep thinking around what your own vision is and what ultimately um, the value that you will bring is something that hedges you from, you know, down the road, bringing a product which ultimately doesn't have value. There's uh, an additional sort of conversation we could have, which relates to, okay, now you have a company, you've raised money. Now what? How do you make sure that company doesn't fail? Just to quickly follow up, you mentioned both at the beginning, um, you mentioned something that customers want. And then during when you were talking a little bit more in detail, you said something that customers need. And I think that these are very different things to my mind is that quite often we're focusing very much on this is the new hotness, everyone's going to want this. But then you look at something like SBOM, you look at something fundamental where it's like, but this is what people need. And this is not necessarily the shiny box with the flashing lights where there's the budget, but this is the fundamental thing that will make everything else easier in your life. And this is what you really need. And to follow up on, on that, Chris, I think part of it is just leadership of, of setting that vision three and five years out. I mean, are we wrong or is, is, that, is there something else going on that we're kind of missing? There's always this tension, right, between customers that know what they want right now and are lacking within their six cybersecurity stack and customers that know ultimately where they're going to be at in three to five years, right? There isn't always overlap between these two things. And when it comes to um, the way I think we should structurally think about it is yes, there is sort of T, T1 priorities, right? Um, the, uh, the common denominator that most ultimately all customers will want right now um, that's missing in their stack. Ultimately, this is, these are the things that um, a lot of startups, when their very first narrow use case they use in order to enter into organizations become, before they become a platform um, with multiple product suites, that is, uh, that is sort of the niche and the tier T1 approach that they take. 
when it comes to sort of the additional products that they eventually develop for their stack, this is where that sort of strategic thinking comes to the fore, right? A lot of entrepreneurs that I work with on an everyday basis um, think, okay, there are these concepts in, in cybersecurity that don't necessarily have a product um, sort of haven't materialized this product yet. When it comes to zero trust, a lot of the sort of wording and a lot of um, uh, the concept around zero trust is ultimately a, a, a domain of thinking, sort of an approach you have to cybersecurity, which can be implemented across the board, whether it's in infrastructure, applications, identities, you name it, right? Um, but that thinking and that sort of approach could generate real life products, right? And could generate, even if it's not real life products, for example, how do we think again about secure web gateways? How do we think about uh, managing access, private access within organizations? Um, how do we um, know how to manage our CASBs better? So I think ultimately these concepts, well, some of them won't be actual products. They inform our future product roadmap Alternatively, for CISOs and for actual practitioners, they inform methodologies which you want to practice within your team, even if it's not necessarily something that comes to, you know, um, that amounts to an actual product. It must take a special CISO to sort of look at an up and coming startup and saying, yes, I, I want to try that product. Yes, I want to try that idea. Is that common or do you think we're we're still at a stage where many of the CISOs are like, just give me the box that has the lights and let me get on with my life? Um, actually, I think in recent years, we're seeing more and more CISOs of um, organizations which are really open to working with early stage ventures and entrepreneurs. I think every single one of them has a different incentive to doing this. So you've got those CISOs that are really, really curious people who have this intellectual quirk to understand and touch a lot of these uh, technologies before everyone else does, right? They want to get exposed to that and they um, share data, provide access to a lot of their resources um, in order to, uh, to accelerate that process and learn a lot and understand how that aligns with your own uh, security program. You have a lot of CISOs that genuinely believe that, you know, this is a product that could ultimately um, not only provide better security posture for our um, for our entire program and our and our company, but also could position the my cybersecurity team as more um, thoughtful and powerful within the entire organization. Right? Where don't forget that we're in an era where a lot of these CISOs are now getting board level seats. Uh, this is something that was unheard of 15 to 10 years ago. Right? Because cybersecurity is becoming such a um, ultimately such a strong and important domain within companies. So that ultimate, ultimately also feeds into how, how companies and how CISOs are looking into getting in early stage technologies to, to you know, multiply their technological and product force. Don't forget also that there's this increasing phenomenon where cybersecurity teams in and of themselves are gaining more and more R&D power. So a lot of CISOs are now hiring engine security engineers um, within their teams. I think Martin, you're seeing that you know directly as as part of you know the sneak team, sneak team, right? 
Um, so they're becoming engineering powerhouses and ultimately engineering powerhouses are always looking to innovate within themselves. So that's a lot of um, sort of perspectives we're hearing, at least from the industry, from CISOs. And I think lastly, a lot of these CISOs also want to be part of this game, whether it's through advisory advisory boards. Uh, they also want you know opportunities to invest in a lot of these um, startups and, and this gives them great exposure. So I think it's a very exciting time for CISOs to work with early stage technologies. You know, in my fear when, when CISOs started to get you know, more visibility in, within organizations and board seats is that they would go the opposite direction. It would be like, how do I make sure my seat the board is safe and the way to do that is not take risks and just tick along and just don't don't stick your head out right but it's good to see that that they really are kind of realizing that their place on the board is because they are the innovator because they are the ones who need to you know constantly be pushing the technology constantly be pushing uh, how a company is securing itself and investing in its future because i think that companies that stand still it's okay to say we feel like we're secure now that might not be the case in a week. That might not be the case in a month. That might not be the case now either. But you know, yeah, that's how breaches happen. But it's it's interesting to see that the these companies and and CISOs that are pushing that and still saying no, we need to think where we're going to be in two years' time and and how the constantly changing technical infrastructure is is going to affect us. Yeah, um, I think it's it's a really exciting time for um, to be a CISO within this sort of particular um, aspect. And I think if you even look at early stage companies and you actually look, you know, within Crunchbase or PitchBook and see where what their advisory board consists of, you'll see a lot of security practitioners there, right? Um, who invest in these companies, who advise in these companies, who inform themselves as, you know, uh, professionals, but also to inform uh, sometimes the companies they're working with or will work in in the future. Um, so, you know, the data is, is there supporting that. Um, so, so it's really an interesting phenomenon. So a per slightly personal question, Nama. Um, mm -hmm. The type of work you're describing takes a, a lot of intellectual power. It takes a lot of curiosity. How do you keep that curiosity alive? What do you do outside of the nine to five work that helps you kind of hone that and, and refresh your appetite for learning and, and getting more data? Um, yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I think there are a lot of, um, I think, thought um, thinking models, right? And a lot of um, intellectual thought streams that we can learn outside of cybersecurity and tailor it for, for the everyday job we do now. So this is my personal quirk, right? Um, I, I'm a reader. I love reading. You know, I, I ultimately a lot around uh, fiction, but um, I think in the past couple of years, um, I love reading nonfiction and specifically biographies. Um, I have this one biographer, Walter Isaacson, and he is sort of my hero when it comes to understanding, you know, the a lot of the human psyche around what drives innovation and genuinely new and thoughtful ideas. Um, and I think that is something that's really, really sort of um, um, shaped the way I think about approaching new endeavors, new projects, new strategies, uh, new products. Um, and none of his work relates to security, right? None of the subjects he's writing about relates to it at all. But I think there's a lot of great things to learn from Leonardo da Vinci um, and uh, Jennifer Doudna 
And of course, Steve Jobs, uh, this has already become a cliche, but I'll say this anyways, because his Steve Jobs biography is brilliant as well. Um, there's a lot of things that we can learn from there um, to understand how we innovate, you know, within this huge enterprises such as Microsoft, but also as startups, um, as investors, um, as CISOs from understanding these outside per perspectives as well. So is there any questions that we haven't asked that we should have asked? This is uh, that point of the, the interview where we ask you, is there anything that we're missing that we really should talk about? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, likely there's a, whole, there's a whole range of stuff, but... <laughs> okay, so, so let me know what you think. Uh, we can talk a lot about, um, you know, the, the first years of a startup or the first month of a cybersecurity startup. What is the most poignant and interesting things there? Um, what are the worst mistakes or best decisions that have taken place with cybersecurity startups? Um, and what potentially are the new trends that we're going to see in upcoming years within cybersecurity? Um, you let me know what we can talk about. I mean, those all sound fun. I mean, I'm a big fan of learning from failure, so I'm very interested in digging into kind of what the what the common mistakes we're seeing are, um, because I think that one of the things that I thought a lot about when you were talking about biographies is, um, I, I think it's a great idea, like looking at biographies from people across the board, inside and outside technology, to try and figure out what their thought models are like, how they think about things, how they come at, at a problem. But also, there's there's a tendency with biographies, biographies of, biographies are written by the winners. And, and they're not written about people who had a dream to do something and then it all which went terribly wrong and they never achieved anything because they, they did something wrong. So I think there's a big gap there where we should learn from people's failures. So I'm interested in that side of things. That is so true what you just said, but ultimately I think what's really great about biographies is understanding the failures of these people specifically, you know, as they emerge with their careers as well. So I think there's a lot to learn about failure from successful people as well. Um, so um, when it comes to, you know, uh, thinking about entrepreneurship um, within either corporate environments such as Microsoft or within entrepreneur or as entrepreneurs, um, I think a lot of the uh, a lot of it boils down to ultimately being a listener, right? Uh, to listen to what the market is ultimately saying, to what customers are saying, um, and not try to drive um, your thesis around something that you know you've built for some reason or another, um, and create that reality. Um, that is, of course, there are exceptional cases uh, when it comes to sort of consumer products, when you think about it within cybersecurity domain, you know, it's, it's uh, when we talk about B2B cybersecurity, um, I, I don't think that's, um, uh, that's the issue here. But also when it comes to, I think, most common mistakes that we've seen um, is, I think, not thinking far enough ahead about your products, because Ultimately, you know, it's really important to find that, you know, big enough value proposition um, as an early stage company um, in order to be attractive enough uh, for customer and derive enough value, but also be narrow enough for customers to, you know, want you to be deployed in their environments, could trust you easily um, as someone, at, you know, who, who currently is not an Akamai or Microsoft or a Cisco, right? Um, so I think juggling these two things together for, to find that sort of one first initial use case that is super, super important. Um, and then that does not relieve you of the need to think 
a few a few steps ahead of what is in your roadmap, right? And it can ultimately change. Um, and that change and how you react to it is crucial as a founder, but also as people that within Microsoft, we have to sometimes make decisions fast, hard decisions, and very succinctly and fast. Um, and if we're unable to do these things because it's painful, we will ultimately pay the price at the end of the day. So initiatives and endeavors and products which we're incubating, which we're seeing that are not gaining traction um, for some reason, we're, we've tried responding to it time and again, these are things that are really important to kill um, at the right time. Um, the question of what is the right time is, you know, the mother of all questions. Uh, we can have a separate podcast just about that. Um, but all of this is to say, um, in order to really, really be thoughtful about the value that you're producing, you also have to know where you're not producing value. And when it becomes tough to kill things at the right time and not let them linger. Yeah, there's the sunk cost fallacy, right? Where we've spent 100 million on this, throwing another 25 or another 50 million seems fine because we've already invested all this money, right? But being able to take that step back exactly. and say, no, this, now's the time. Yeah. But you also mentioned something about having to have that vision, but also being listening to the, the customers, to the, the environment around you. That's a really hard um line to straddle between having that vision of what you want to accomplish in five years and being willing to cut some of it now to be able to to hit those those goals in five years and as a as a uh m a expert you have to be willing to to tell somebody no you're wrong your 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 this part of your vision can't be accomplished as a startup or can't be accomplished now those have to be difficult conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I, they're, it's difficult conversations, but they're really, really healthy to have. You know, when we're sitting inside uh, Microsoft within product groups and sort of hashing out those ideas, um, there you have tons of different stakeholders thinking with tons of different ideas, each coming in from their own um, certain belief system around where products and technologies and trends are going. Just because they're difficult conversations doesn't mean we shouldn't have them. We should encourage them, right? Um, and at the end of the day, you know, you you hash these things out. You sit down in a, in a in a room, and you make decisions, right? It might not be in the first minute. It might take you know some some weeks to make these decisions, but they take place. And actually, um, I think within um, the R and D center here, we really sort of celebrate um, the fact that there's so many talented engineers and product managers and uh, and product strategists here. Um, that um, have all these brilliant ideas um, and ways to think about how, how Microsoft's security proposition uh, will take place in the upcoming years. Um, it's something to celebrate um, this uh, idea of being so opinionated. Um, so yes, it's hard, but I think it's just by nature an inherent part of the process. I wanted to, to touch a little bit on kind of what the future looks like. I mean, I know you can't really talk about specifics and in, in vagaries. There's been some recent announcements on the Microsoft side, specifically around security and, and using more AI models, as far as I understand it. I, I need to read more more uh, updates on it. But you know, that's very exciting work. And I imagine that's the kind of thing that you've been looking at over, over various years uh, within your areas as well. Is that the direction things are moving in? Everything's going AI or... Or is that not really where the future lies for, for you know, the next iteration of security? 
is it just more hot air being blown into the security <laughs> realm is what Chris is actually trying to ask. No, it wasn't quite what I wanted to ask, but you know, is it, is it more regex or, or is there, there's something else behind it? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think, you know, as a whole, not just within the Microsoft context, but as a whole, there's a lot of questions uh, around, okay, how can we leverage AI? And a lot of questions around, um, you know, additional technologies that are um, uh, based on a lot of these models. Um, so for example, you know, with, when it comes to the cybersecurity realm, you can think about ways to leverage um, AI models to um, provide better um, threat detection or to better classify uh, sensitive data um, and to better understand how to react live to a lot of um, you know, attacks and threats that are currently taking place. So there are multiple ways to actually leverage this, but the product itself doesn't change. It's just the underlying technology changes. But ultimately, um, where there's a new product opportunities within cybersecurity is potentially around, okay, you have those AI models, they are going to be an attack surface in and of themselves. What do we do about this? Do we need to think about products um, that would secure these AI models, right? And I think multiple um, very talented people around the world are currently thinking long and hard about how do we, um, how do, we do this and do we do this right now? Um, whether it's a lot of startups, whether it's um, a lot of practitioners in the industry. So that is um, specifically within the, within the AI domain. There are multiple different you know, domains that we can think about. Quantum computing you know, will eventually sort of disrupt cryptography that we've been using for the past 40 or 50 years. What the heck do we do with that, right? Um, do we now really need to think again about you know, um, new cryptographic models? Do we um, try and circumvent that until we find a better um, a technology. So I think a lot of this, um, you know, is ultimately things that not just um, sort of challenge the way computing is looking like these days, but also cybersecurity. Yeah, there's a, a big drive to understand those threats now, right? So I mean, the specific one you mentioned about quantum computing and, uh, you know, effectively, maybe in five, 10 years time, the cryptography that we use now can be broken in seconds using quantum technologies, right? And People think, well, that's fine. That's a problem for five or 10 years out. But when you start to realize, yes, but that means any data that someone can capture now, in five years' time, they can read that data. Suddenly, that becomes a whole new new issue, right? So if someone's sitting in a network and they can only see encrypted data, that's not a problem now. But once crypt once quantum computing is, is prevalent, maybe they can start to read that data and that's sensitive at that point. So we need to solve these problems now. So it's good to see that uh, you know, there's a vision on that. And following up on your point, Chris, when we look at AI, a large problem is that the same sort of, of biases that we have as individuals and as corporations are baked into the AI. Uh, and that's another aspect of the problem. How are, we how are we creating these machine learning technologies, these AI technologies in such a way that we're not building in our own biases to the future and, and making a, a weakness there? Like you said, this is a whole nother topic that we could spend hours <laughs> talking about. Um, my, I guess one of my last questions for you is, how do we look outside of our ecosphere? How do we look outside of the security community um, to pull in the sort of learnings other people have, have that would affect or help us understand security better? Wow, that is a great question. Um, I think, you know, whenever you think about a new, um, 
security domain, it's always or mostly triggered by a new underlying technology. Just, just as an example, um, when you think about um, the emergence of containers um, in the industry as sort of infrastructure and computing entities, right, within cloud computing as a whole, certain companies, for example, Twistlock and Aqua, took an outright bet saying this is going to be a huge thing and this needs to have a secure dedicated security overlay we're going to be that security overlay so you always got to keep your pulse on technologies that are emerging outside of cybersecurity as a whole in order to understand okay how do we how does security fit into this narrative does it even fit into this narrative does it fit into this narrative now is it too nascent right now in order to even be a thing for example Arguably, maybe quantum computing is a bit too nascent right now, not in full enough adoption in order for us to provide an overlay of security around it. Um, alternatively, you know, do we build security by design with a lot of these um, technologies? We're talking a lot about, you know, uh, um, crypto assets, um, Web 3.0 assets, um, NFTs. This could also be something that sort of interjects with this um, with this domain as well. Um, so I think you cannot think of new endeavors and products within cybersecurity without understanding a lot of the um, new technologies, trends, um, and ecosystems that are emerging outside of it. Great. It's got a lot of stuff to think about there. So thanks very much for that. Um, I, I guess to, to, to close things out, where can people find more information about you? Do you have a blog, a Twitter, a LinkedIn, somewhere where people can reach out if they have some questions or they want to add you to their professional network um <laughs> but uh how, how do people reach you or, or reach your readings and uh, and your writings yeah so it's all centered in my linkedin so nama bendov um and i think well i don't know if that's relevant but i do have a podcast coming up it's in hebrew so i don't know to what extent it'll be relevant for our listeners uh but i do have that coming up and um so i think it mostly revolves around the linkedin Thank you very much for, for the time today. Really appreciate the, the really interesting talk. And um, we hope to have you back on to talk about some of the stuff that we didn't touch on because there's uh, quite a lot of, of things to unpack there. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was, uh, I had a great time. Thank you for listening to the First Impressions podcast and thanks to this week's guest. You can find Chris John Riley on Twitter at Chris John Riley, all one word. You can find me, Martin McKay, on Twitter at M-C-K-E-A-Y. And you can find the first organization at first.org, F-I-R-S-T D-O-T-O-R-G. You can also find more information about First and the First Impressions podcast at first.org. Thanks again for listening.